Welcome to Brand Story Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Joining me today on Brand Story Inc. is Josh Sternberg, who has a media newsletter called Media Nut. You can also follow him on Twitter at Josh Sternberg, S-T-E-R-N-B-E-R-G. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to jump right in. Uh, you had a recent post on the Media Nut titled, Why Publisher Content Studios Are Set Up to Fail. But I think some depth on your personal journey at places like the Washington Post, Digiday and, and Adweek would be helpful for our listeners for some context. If you could share some of the highlights of your journey points through the lens of your involvement in both the publisher content studios and brand content studios, I think it would set things up perfectly for us. Yeah, sure. So um, when I was a media reporter at Digiday, uh, geez, almost a decade ago now, um, I was covering this embryonic sector of the publisher landscape called native advertising mm. um remember that term yes and you know the 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 understanding how i i positioned it was native advertising was specifically about advert ad units that were endemic to that particular site so if you bought for example um a promoted tweet on twitter you could not do the same thing on another publisher or platform because it was specific to Twitter. Mm -hmm. And as this idea of native advertising spread to publishers, they started to look at it as well. You know, we are content houses. We, we generate stories, often hundreds of stories a day. We are very good at this. Um, let's start creating stories for advertisers. And I think at that time it was actually a really smart idea, right? Ad tech was, and continues to this day, to depress CPMs. Uh, publishers are looking mm -hmm. for additional ways of making money beyond display ads. And the idea of creating content for advertisers around topics that advertisers are A, comfortable with, and B, um, can be interesting told by former journalists who know their way around a narrative seems to be a, a pretty interesting spark for publishers. Right. So what, so one day I got a call from the Washington post, uh, the, the chief revenue officer at the time. And he's like, look, we're, we're a little behind the eight ball here. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos bought us, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, eight or nine months ago. And we're seeing this landscape and we know that we need to do this right now. We don't have the, the systems in place. You know the playbooks of these companies. Mm -hmm. You've been reporting on it. Do you want to come and, and help build and run this thing? And uh, I hemmed and I hawed and I said, you know what? Sure, let's try it. Let's see what happens. Um, so we started to build out this, this Washington post, uh, branded studio. And, uh, over the course of the next couple of years, we, we did some really interesting work. Um, 
both creatively and structurally on building out processes between sales and marketing to help really drive revenue. And then one day I got a phone call from NBC saying, hey, we like what you're doing there. Do you want to come do this for us? And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm having a really fun time here. <laughs> and over the coming weeks and months, they continued to uh, talk to me and I continued to talk with them. And they finally um, presented something that seemed really, really good. And I went over to NBC and helped build and run their uh, NBC News branded content studio. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was great until it wasn't. Um, NBC is a very large organization and there were often redundancies and I happened to be one of them and my team was let go and I needed to find work again and I found myself uh, back on the edit side at Adweek running uh, the tech brand and media desks over my almost three years at the publication. And that brings us to today. Yeah, it's, and I think, you know, and I'm not saying this to pander to you. I think in terms of publisher content studios, I, I know the Washington Post I hold in high regard. I mean, Digiday, um, if you go back and look at the Digiday Awards for publisher content, Washington Post is just always in the in the mix for for winning all kinds of awards he's done some amazing stuff there so that, that's why i think the context was really important because having covered it from a journalist perspective covered the industry from the journalist perspective but also having been in the trenches and to your point kind of been from the ground up at washington post on the publisher content studio that context um to me is 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 really exciting as we kind of go into the next part of this which was you know, really diving into your article, uh, Josh's media entity, the Media Nut, which you guys can subscribe to at medianut.substack.com. Uh, I just signed up a couple weeks ago uh, to the, the newsletter. Great content coming out of there. Uh, last week you published, or a couple weeks ago, the previously mentioned article on why publisher content studios are set up to fail. Uh, you posted it the day after the New York Times laid off 68 staffers, mostly on the advertising side. It shuttered its experiential marketing agency, Fake Love. Uh, you, you cited the Atlantic's recent layoffs and nearly the 12% global ad dip this year, among many other factors that were, were definitely, I think you termed it, uh, strong headwinds for the industry. So I want to jump in to the publisher content studios in, in, the, in the pretext of, of the article on why you believe publisher content studios are set up to fail. Explain that. Yeah, so, you know, the, the gross oversimplification of it is that these content studios are, are typically run with a sales and ad sales marketing point of view. And because of that, what happens is that the, the structure doesn't allow for consistency. It doesn't allow for client retention. So to dive into that a little bit more is that publisher studios can and do create really interesting and good work. But often what happens behind the scenes is that a publisher studio is selling a promise. They're selling 
the content in a way that if it were a display ad, but the challenge is, is that a, a sales function and a sales organization is not set up to think long term. They are set up to focus on their goals. Their, you know, they've got their monthly numbers to hit or their quarterly numbers to hit. And because content is labor intensive and therefore expensive, what often happens is that during the discussion of the of the deal is that a sales the sales team may often overpromise what the content studio team can deliver on. So that's what I mean when they're set up to fail, is that the, the structures are not designed to allow for the consistency. Because what happens is that, so let's say, and this is just a hypothetical. So let's say a, a publisher says to a buyer, hey, look, you know, we want your client, we, we, you know, our audience would be great for it. Let's do five videos and it's going to cost you $500,000. And the buyer just says, no, we're, we're not going to mm -hmm. do that. We're not going to do $100,000 per video. What we can do is we have $100,000 total and we would like 10 videos. Mm -hmm. Since the sales rep's incentive is to get that IO so that they can hit their, their numbers, they say, Okay, let's do it. And you know what? We'll, th we'll throw in a couple other things. Mm -hmm. And then when they go back to the content studio, who then has to go and execute on this. Um, oh, and by the way, the initial plan was six to eight weeks for a video to shoot, edit, package, whatever. Yeah. That actually has to be done in three weeks now. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that the quality that you think that you're getting as an advertiser from the publisher content studio isn't as strong as you thought it was going to be because the idea gets watered down and um the buyer and the advertiser get upset and they say okay well you didn't fulfill on your promise and and or like maybe you didn't even come close to hitting your impressions goals right uh so we would like a make good now that make good costs company publishers more time and money to produce and when it comes time for the next RFP or the next deal, guess who's not on the consideration set? Yeah. And then the other, and it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go say, ahead. And it, what fascinated me, and I won't name them specifically, but some of the large, large media companies, I was stunned to find out when you're talking about the publisher content studio, um, that sometimes the, the impressions that they would guarantee through their own platforms, they couldn't deliver. So then they're, essentially arbitraging Facebook and other places to, to kind of, to, to your point, it's just eating at margin and they're just buying impressions that anyone could buy on the open market. And there's almost like this wink, wink, handshake deal. I know you're doing it. We know we're doing it, but we need to get to the impressions, which it just seems crazy to me, right? Because the whole construct of a publisher content studio is, hey, we have these properties or in communities around content and we're going to let you into them, right? And when you really pull the curtain back on part of it, it's like, well, yeah, to a point. And then we don't get there. We're going to do what everyone else does and just make sure we check the box and get a total gross tonnage of impressions that regardless of if they're within our community or not. 
And, you know, it's funny because I, I actually wrote about this today. So today is July 1st. And today is also is the day where more than 400 brands mm-hmm. are pausing, if not pulling completely, their Facebook ad spend um, as part of the Stop Hate for Profit uh, activism campaign. Mm-hmm. And the the unintended consequence of that is these advertisers now who inked deals with publishers in Q1, Q2 for sponsored content, now the publishers find themselves in a bit of a pickle because they can't put money behind (laughs) their sponsored content to get those impressions on Facebook because those advertisers can't be on Facebook now. So these publishers are now having to renegotiate ad deals at a time when they are already hurting from the coronavirus and the impacts of ad spend plummeting yeah um you know the arbitrage game is it's a it's a it's a serious business for a lot of these digital publications and um hey look we're in that boat josh we own uh la vida baseball right and we have and I, I think that's one of the challenging things and and people don't like to talk about it and i've had facebook on this podcast but it's pay for play, right? Like, let make no mistake about it. And um, I've had this conversation directly with Facebook. Uh, you know, we've done, uh, we we paid a little bit to kind of, as in the beginning, to grow some more audience. And then you get to a point where it was like, okay, this is crazy. We're doing live daily original programming on Facebook. And for every follower we add, Facebook takes one away. We have not net moved net forward one while on every other platform we've grown you know significantly and you sit there and be like oh it's just amazing how it works you you these owned platforms right people talk about you don't really own anything right you own your brand and you're kind of at the mercy of the platform and when they change the the spigot but that to your point within the subset of publishers this is a what you wrote about today this is a huge issue it's the People are thinking, okay, so Coca-Cola and all these other places and Hershey, they're P&Gs, they're boycotting Facebook. That's direct buy. That indirect buy is huge. There are tons of deals mm-hmm. going on with any media publisher that's that's anyone on here has heard of is using that tactic of um, paid distribution on Facebook as part of the playbook. So that indirect thing, to your point, the, you're going to be writing many more publishing. I mean, imagine being in ad sales right now. The market's down to your point, 65%, right? CPMs are down. And now you're taking the the pay for scale component for public, that publishers always fight out of the playbook. Oof. There's a lot of unintended consequences with this move, which is, I haven't read your article yet, but that's that's what you're saying, right? I mean, it's yeah. tough times. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, um, you know, I had one media exec say, look, in the long term, it's, it's fine, right? It's good because it means that pub, uh, that Facebook is taking actual content seriously. Yeah. Uh, but the short term, they said, is it's a it's a kick to the gut because, you know, you're 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 already losing money um, because of the impact of the coronavirus, and now you have to really pay attention to make sure that your client, who said that they are not spending on Facebook for the next month, you're not putting any paid yep. mo- any paid distribution behind the sponsored content that you've created for them. It's 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 not great. No. 
All right, so one of the things that you had in your article on uh, why publisher uh, content studios are set up to fail, I really enjoyed your content scale. You had a one to 10 content scale. Explain that for us. So one of the things, and remember, so this was in 2014. Mm-hmm. One of the things at the time is that sales reps did not know how to sell content as advertising. Right. Mm -hmm. They were used to slinging banner ads um, digitally, perhaps section sponsorships, uh, you know, for for TV. They were selling commercials and pods for print. They were selling uh, column inches, Um, but they never really sold content. Sure. They, you know, the magazines would have had uh, still do the the special inserts that they were able to sell. But those were those were always uh, let's call them self-serving for the advertiser, um, and no one really read them. And for digital, that 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 wasn't really a thing. So then the sponsored content, custom marketing, custom content, native advertising, whatever we're calling it, this thing pops up, and all of a sudden the sales reps need to be able to sell a new product. And I found quickly that creating a scale to help advertisers understand how content can be used as an advertising mechanism helped the sales rep. So I came up with a one to 10 system where I think one was where uh, the the content that we're creating is um, specifically about the brand. Um, so let's say it's, you know, we'll use Coca-Cola, right? So let's say Coca-Cola wants to do sponsored content with me as a publisher. I go to them, present them this scale and say, all right, look on, do you want this content series to be how great Coke is, how great Mm -hmm. Coke's products are, how great Coke's, uh, corporate social responsibility initiatives are. Um, if that's the case, then it's, basically a, a pure ad and you know we'll we'll, we'll do it um, but having that expectation up front helps throughout the whole entire process whereas on on the flip side of the scale the 10 is where the story is about a brand attribute that the company wants it to for itself to be known for so let's say coca-cola wants to be known for corporate responsibility the story has, will not mention Coke, will not talk to any Coke executives. Instead, maybe we talk to a whole bunch of nonprofits that are doing something that are related to what Coke wants to push. So it's it's more journalistic. It's it's the brand. You know, Coca-Cola has final say mm-hmm. on on the story because they're the ones that are buying it. But the story itself is not about Coca-Cola. And I found by doing this scale and, and, you know, shades in between, right? So maybe a company wants to be more like a seven where Mm -hmm. it's not about Coca-Cola's product. It's maybe it's, it's about this, this idea and we will quote a, a Coca-Cola executive. Um, So by setting up those expectations during the pitch process and once we, work with the, the the brand it really helps for the end result so that way nobody is surprised when the piece of content comes in 
and the expectations have already been established that this is the the tone the message the feel of the particular story what's what's interesting too there's a lot i'd be curious to get your reaction to this uh in your scale right there's a lot of data to support the closer you are to 10 the more effective it's going to be but yet that's right there's still this industry lag of people maybe who don't understand it's like the halo effect or the nuance of like, you know, consumers are smart. They know when they're being advertised to, right? It's that, that nuance of like, I, I'm okay with you advertising, but give me something of value so I care about you, right? Like there's that 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 balance. Where, where would you say, you said you came up with that in, in 2014. I'd be curious mm-hmm. if you had to put your thumb in the air, where do you think brands are in terms of, the scale on average today in 2020? I, you know what? I don't know because I have not seen a piece of sponsored content since I stopped doing sponsored content. (laughs) I just don't, I don't see it. Right. Um, so that might answer your question. There you go. Um, you know, I see the units on there, but I don't click on it. Right, I don't right. see, I, I, I don't get targeted for, for this stuff. I mean, also because I'm on Facebook, um, yep. I'm not on Facebook, but you know, I think that because brands in the grand scheme of things, it's more important for the publisher than it is for the brand. And since these, like also think about it this way, right? So like, the efficacy of sponsored content is measured by publisher metrics, not advertiser metrics. Mm. Do a- advertisers don't care about generally about page views, right. social shares, time on site. Those are publisher metrics. Advertisers care about brand lift. They care about sales, right? Things that advertising has traditionally done for them, which is one of the reasons why Facebook is so effective is because it works. You don't need to have a beautiful, complicated story about people and tie it to a brand. You can just run a really funny image with a call to action and put it into, you know, Facebook audience network and get what you need. Yeah. So there's a disconnect. And this also comes part to the, the idea of, um, why these publisher studios are set up to fail. We're just not talking the same language. Yep. No, it's really interesting that the publisher, that's a, that's a great point. The publisher metrics when really it's success is, is really in the buyer through the, through the lens of the buyer, not the seller. Right. Um, that's right. So to that point, the fundamentals of editorial, as you explained it uh, in your article, I think you said quote, editorial operations pump out hundreds of pieces of content per day and not everyone hits. End quote. You mentioned that if you get 15% of those to hit from an editorial standpoint, that's great. But for sponsored or branded content, that's not good. Um, you just touched on the this notion of publisher metrics. Uh, what would you suggest as it relates to course correcting that advertising publisher content studio efficacy or measurement? What should it be? Or, or at least how should it be approached? Uh, 
I don't know. So like I, I always looked at it this way, right? If first of all, it can't be a one-off. You mm-hmm. can't just do one one piece of content and and walk away in the same way that you can with a display ad, right? Like you can take a display ad um, and pop it into a programmatic channel, press a button, and that display ad runs on five hundred thousand sites, right? right? Um, it doesn't work that way with content and it's also not effective for a publisher to create a hundred thousand pieces of content for an advertiser. Right. So, so I think the most effective thing to do is have plans that are multiple pieces of content that do multiple things. So if you go back to the scale, let's say you've got 10 pieces of content, you've got a couple that run on the one side and a couple that run on the 10 side and a few that run in between understanding that of those 10 pieces, seven of them, seven of them are going to not come anywhere close to your benchmark. Yep. Right. Just playing the law of average. Yep. One, one piece will do really, really well mm-hmm. outperforming your expectations. And maybe you've got two pieces that, that do okay. That one piece that does really, really well, that's where you should put money behind on paid social for that story to spread because you've found organically mm-hmm. that people enjoy that piece. So then you put money behind that piece, you get more views, which counts towards the total of all of your pieces. Mm-hmm. And then you should at this point have recirculation units on your site. That way, you know, if you like this piece, you'll like this. Yeah. You've come to see this piece that's done really well and you'll see the, the laggards in those units and hope that you get a, a couple of clicks from that. So to that end, which publisher studios do you look at and admire or ones that you would put air quotes do you think are succeeding? Which ones are good examples out there? Um, So I think Complex does a really good job. Um, So they understood right away the power of content for their audience. And I think that's also something that people forget, right? So mm-hmm. one of the, the hard, one of the hard parts about being in custom publishing at a news organization is that news by definition is commodity. Mm-hmm. An event happens and people cover it, right? What is the difference between the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal on a news event? There isn't much. Mm-hmm. Um, Complex, on the other hand, is more lifestyle. It has a rabid fan base and audience. So the company has to put together sponsorship deals and ad deals and cu- custom content deals that reflect that. So I find that the more that you get out of news publishing and you get more into, we'll call it lifestyle publishing. Yeah the the better and stronger sponsored content you get um yeah it's it's interesting i i always talk about i think community might be the new cliche word trying to supplant authenticity in the content space um but i think it's relevant here right and and i think um I want to go back in a second around the difference between a brand content studio and a publisher content studio but 
but bear with me for a second. Like I, I think yep. you talked about complex. I look at these like community driven publishers, right? Where it's almost like um, I'm personally not a big fan of it, but like Barstool Sports, right? Uh-huh. Like it is a that's a community, right? Like you have people buying merchandise to fly flags and wear gear that I'm associated with this publisher, right? It's the old hat and t-shirt test and they have it. And and I often say like, you know, if they, if they point, if they use the publisher voice and point, you know, um, their constituents to say, Hey, be at this corner of this street on this day because we asked you to be there, they could get 50,000 people to do that. And that is worth way more than the $10 times 50,000 people that of whatever you're going to sell to them, right? It's like this nuance of like letting them in. Uh, one that I love, uh, the Morning Brew. I've really become a fan of their their morning newsletter. It's awesome. And the way that they integrate advertising advertisers is so well done that I find myself it's, – it's A, it's well-written. B, it's providing something of value to the reader. Like it's kind of aligned. Um you know, it'll be like, okay, you're inviting WeWork in and WeWork's talking about what's the what's the office going to look like in 90 days, right? Like from a business perspective, from like a business owner perspective, how should you think about it? And it's done in a fun and playful way. But it's almost this notion of like, hey, not too dissimilar from when you hear a first person, a picture of favorite podcast that you listen to and you hear a first person endorsement. There's this like, we've let these advertise, we didn't just take a dollar, like we let these advertisers into our community and have vetted them and are connecting them with you. Um, I'm exaggerating a point to make a point. Um, yep. And I feel like that's where publisher content studios have the potential. Publishers have an advantage over brand content studios. But as you and I were talking, it seems like brand content studios seem to be evolving to almost do a better job than publishers. I'm curious to get your take on that. Where do you see the publisher uh, content studio going up against the brand content studio. Yeah, I so I think that in the long run, if if I were first smart, or if the industry were smart, let's put it that way, if the industry were smart, as the ad agencies become disintermediated, and and I bring them up specifically in this reason. Now you didn't mention ad agencies. But I think the ad agencies hold can hold the keys here, where there are right now forty thousand unemployed journalists. Mm-hmm. An ad agency can build a pretty tight custom studio for their advertisers to create custom content for them, and then distribute that through publishers. Mm-hmm. If I'm a if I'm a brand, I don't want to be making content. That's not my job. Mm-hmm. As a company, my my job is to create the products and goods and services that my consumers buy. Full stop. We've seen brand content studios make a lot of big misses. Um, I think that the the big one that everyone remembers is the Pepsi and Kylie Jenner yeah. ad from a couple of years ago. Um, but I think the the, the, the smart play would be for an advertiser to push their agency to create the, these custom studios, 
because the agencies are ostensibly the an, a, an additional organ to the client mm-hmm. who can then be, be be briefed from the client to create this journalistic style content and then just make a regular old media buy on behalf of the client yeah yeah no it's interesting it's it's like that's it's a it's kind of what you and I talked about in my day job at Teamworks. There's an element of that's what we do for some of our clients, right? But I think that the it's it's interesting because you think about the infrastructure of the ad agency and they're out seeking existing things to insert their brand into. And what you're saying is do the opposite. Go make what doesn't exist that's a perfect fit for you from the ground up because the resources are there, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, yeah. I mean, and it's also, it's it's like, look, to your point, nobody, you know, a, a, a publisher who is by definition here in this situation, a third party, will never have as much institutional knowledge yep. of the brand. Now, yep. theoretically, the theoretically the agency has a pretty big stake in the brand, right? Because yeah. as long as the brand is successful, the agency is successful. And if the agency is successful in doing stuff for the brand, the brand is happy, right? So if I'm building something today in 2020, I'm thinking, well, maybe not do it through a under the house of the brand, but do it under the house of the brand's agency. Let the creatives create. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've got 70 plus years of creating really good as well as bad commercials yeah but now with, with all of the uh journalistic talent that's that's out there they can actually create really good sponsored content now of course the brands themselves have to be able to understand that you know in order for this to work it 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 can't be all of the pieces of content can't be on the one side of the scale they yeah. need to hew more towards the tent and that takes a lot of conversation and a lot of um, you know, kind of stumbling around before landing on it. It's interesting. Uh, you kind of spark something there, Josh, and that's, um, I guess I'm a little more agnostic, right, in terms of that, because as I think about even guests that we've had on this podcast, uh, you quoted Stephanie Losey, right, from, um, who's now at Autodesk, right, who's, uh-huh. who's done, run content studios for, for major brands, um, We've also had David Beebe, who was one of the founders of kind of Marriott's content studio. And, and those organizations, Autodesk and Marriott, um, Autodesk has, the, has created their own publishing entity called Redshift around the future of design thinking, right, which is kind of their content marketing. Marriott has Traveler, which is kind of, you know, Travelog. Yep. And they're really well done. And, and so to me, it's interesting. It's like the fact that those are done in-house, if you will, there's something there culturally the way they set those up and have evolved. Um, and we kind of dug in with that. Like what is, I think it can be done. It's rare that it's done well, but to your yes. part, it can also be done externally. And so you kind of get into the nuance of like an organizational's culture and being self-aware. I think there's almost this element of like, okay, we could technically do it. We have the money to do it. But if you, if you're not aligned at the top level of the organization of understanding how this works, it's going to go down to your, you're going to be in the meeting about talking about content scales. You're going to have the Josh. You better have that Josh Sternberg content st- scale out at every meeting, 
but ideally it should be if you have the culture to be able to do eight nines and tens as you described it then it could it could exist internally yes and and that's i think that's that's a, that's a great point that there are companies that do do this well and marriott is is up there with it um interestingly i wrote a pretty big feature on this a year or two ago um on marriott specifically mm. right they've got yep. you know they, they've got a a a built-in audience that's larger than pretty much any other media company. Yeah. And they understand, they understand that content is important and they look at content through various lenses. And I yep. think that's the key. Um, the other important part to that, as you mentioned, is that from the top down, they view content less as a means to an end, um, more as here's a thing that we know is something that will resonate with our consumer, right? Yeah. Um, travel is, and I'm, it's, it's always interesting to see how, and Hilton also, Hilton does uh, a good job with, with, with content also, because they understand, look, these are multinational, multi-billion dollar companies that get people to pay a lot of money for experiences. Yeah. And they understood that in order to get people to pay for those experiences, you need to show people those experiences. <laughs> and how do you show people experiences? You tell stories about that. Yeah. You, you do beautiful images, you do beautiful videos, you do compelling narratives. And yeah. Over and, time. and you do it with a nuance. This is the thing that you're talking about, that at that nexus of sales and marketing usually gets screwed up. When you're, when you're talking about the best way to go to the Bahamas and do it the right way, you, you don't say and book your Marriott, stay here in the content, right? Like that, right. And, and that little nuance, which is so freaking common sense, is institutionally embedded in a lot of places and that's where they go south that's right because brands have are it's all about me yep it's always all about me and consumers today they're like well it's not always about you the brand it actually should be about me the consumer yep you're the one that wants me to spend you're the one that wants me to click you're the one that wants me to do something so you have to make content that's interesting to me. And not a lot of brands understand that. And that's where, you know, publishers, they do understand that because that's their business. Yep. But, but their challenge, though, is that the, the philosophy of a publisher and the philosophy of a brand are in many ways like oil and water. Mm-hmm. Well said, well said. Speaking with Josh Sternberg of uh, Media Journalist, who also writes The Media Nut, which you can sign up for online. You can follow him on Twitter, at Josh Sternberg, and, and find your path to sign up to the newsletter. Uh, Want to turn it personal here on the home stretch, Josh. You're a guy who writes really insightful stuff um, on our industry. How do you, what are your morning musts? 
Who do you follow? Who do you allow into your email inbox? How do you stay on top of what's going on that enables you to have such a rich conversation like this? Um, so I'm going to back into this question. <laughs> um, you can sign into it, back into it. I'm not letting you off the hook. Though. Well, <laughs> because it's, 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 it's no one publication, right? Sure. Like I read, I read everything that everybody else reads. What I do, I think differently than, than the average person is I talk to a lot of people mm-hmm. and that's what informs my thinking. Um, so yes, I, you know, I, I read, you know, the New York times, the wall street journal, Washington post every day. Um, I read the trades every now and then, but I find them to be missing a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it depends on really, you know, like, uh, the, the, you know, it's everything from, I read everything from recode and the box media properties mm-hmm. to, um, really whatever crosses my, my Twitter feed. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that seems to be the, the place where I get most of my news from when it comes for understanding how the pieces of puzzle of the media puzzle operate. I talk to people, I talk to CEOs and CMOs and CROs, but I also talk to managers, directors, and VPs. Mm-hmm. I talk, I talk to ad ops yield managers. Mm. I talk, I talk to ad sales, marketing people. One of the advantages I think that, uh, I have is because I work in the belly of the beast, I have these relationships <laughs> at brands, publishers, and mm-hmm. agencies that many other media reporters don't. Mm-hmm. So I can tap into that and be like, Hey, um, I see this thing like, so like today's piece, for example, and I'm able to write this piece because I know how this industry operates. I know that publishers bake in Facebook impressions into their sponsored content because I did it. Yeah. And I, and I know who to talk to about it mm-hmm. as opposed to media reporters um, who, you know, they're, they're, they might be covering Facebook's the Facebook boycott and all the brands that are leaving, but they're, they're not talking to the publishers and the effect, you know, this yeah. unintended yeah. consequence because it's one of those, you know, they don't know what they don't know. Right. Well, the good news is our listeners can all just follow you and tap into that at Josh Sternberg on Twitter. And as I mentioned, highly, highly recommend media nut, which you can get at medianut.substack.com. Sign up to Josh's newsletter. Uh, last question before we let you go here, Josh. In terms of the bedside book stand, what are you reading or what have you recently read that you're enjoying? So this is going to sound strange. This is my I favorite segment, that. by the way, because you never know where someone's going to go. <laughs> um, so when the pandemic started, um, I had just finished reading uh, a novel, and I very rarely read novels. Um, I'm typically a 
you know, historical mm-hmm. nonfiction, nonfiction. Uh, you and me both. Uh, That's my sweet spot. Um, but I needed a break. So I, so I was reading a novel and then the coronavirus hit and I did something that I had never done before. Hmm. Um, I brought my phone into my bedroom because I needed an alarm clock. Oh boy. And that meant that I started playing games before bed instead of, <laughs> instead of reading. So now instead of reading books, I play games, um, <laughs> because since I am no longer commuting to work, I don't have that time to sit and read. I mean, I, I guess I could, since I don't have a job, right, right. um, but but you know i find that now i you know at bedtime instead of reading i play video games because life is so chaotic and so crazy and so stressful that um escapism baby <laughs> and that's where and that's where the video game comes into yeah. play the, the the books are not books are not escapist yeah uh for me because i get really into them um whereas with these you know the games that I play on my phone. Like I play baseball because nice. I, I miss playing. I miss watching baseball. So now I get to, I play baseball at night on my phone. Which game? And that's which baseball game? Uh, it's called uh, L- MLB nine innings. Okay. I think it's called. Cool. Awesome. So, so yeah. So, so my reading at night, my books have, have gone to zero, but like I said, I, I still read a lot during the day. Hey, I'm using Ozark right now as my escape mechanism because uh, Justin Bateman's in a world of hurt, and uh, I just look and say, "Well, it's a tough time here, but boy, at least I'm not in that guy's shoes." So I, I'm with you. Well, Josh, I appreciate you taking the time. Really fun conversation. It's such a pleasure to dive deep into uh, something uh, like the Publisher Content Studio to the depth um, that we did with someone who has the background that you do. So really appreciate you sharing your insights. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.